mental health services at a mobile barbershop. I mean, who can't applaud that? That's pretty creative and pretty genius. Important disruptors in healthcare today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. Today's episode is an extended version of our Beyond the News segment with HFMA Senior Editor Nick Hutt and HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack. They'll be following up and expanding on their March webinar about disruption, diving into things they didn't have time for and answering a few lingering attendee questions. If you didn't attend the webinar and you'd like to rewatch it, we'll post a link in the show notes, but it's definitely not a prerequisite for this episode. Later on, we'll hear from HFMA's Todd Nelson about the association's partnership with Boise State to bring about a unique educational offering. For now, here's Nick and Sean. Hello, everybody. We are taking the Beyond the News segment up a notch today. Erica has basically allowed us to take over the entire episode, which I can only hope won't end up being to her everlasting regret. Uh, But in late March, we actually did an hour-long webinar on disruption in healthcare. If you want to listen to it on demand, the link should be in the show notes. Just because it's such an intriguing and wide-ranging topic, we had a bunch of stuff that we thought was relevant, but weren't able to get to. So here we are. Something I think we should just reiterate from the webinar, just to set the table, Sean, is, is the stakes involved. And we're really talking about financial stakes. What is drawing in all these new entrants who are disrupting healthcare? Well, what draws everyone to everything, Nick? It's it's money. <laughs> so, as everyone knows, healthcare in the U.S. is a very lucrative business at times um, for some folks, I guess you could say. So, healthcare consumes eighteen percent of of the GDP in the U.S. So, around three point six trillion a year. So, much, much, much higher than other rich countries, where healthcare hovers right around ten percent of the GDP. So. You know, scientific advances in fields such as gene sequencing, artificial intelligence make new modes of care possible and safer, and those are surging in the U.S. Venture capitalists continue to focus on sectors that is uniquely um, ripe for disruption. Disruptors are focusing on targeting um, patients directly in the U.S., meeting them where they are and letting them choose how they want care delivered, trying to get it in on a piece of that revenue And then earlier this year, J.P. Morgan's Chase Healthcare Jamboree was flooded with entrepreneurs and investors taking on, you know, topics like AI and digital diagnostics and telehealth. So just a lot up for for grabs in this area of the market. That's why there's such a great attraction to healthcare right now by outside investors and all these um, startup companies. Absolutely. Yeah. Great perspective. It's a big pie and, and slices, I guess you would say, are there for the taking. Right. But we also talked uh, during the webinar about how disruptors are striving to keep people healthy in more cost-effective ways. Um, by and large, that's happening outside the fee-for-service payment structure. And there are a lot of noteworthy examples that aren't grabbing headlines like Amazon or Walmart tend to do just by virtue of their brands. Some of these are really more like niche providers that focus on caring for a very specific subset of the population. Um, A good example, I think, is a provider called ChenMed. It's a one word, C-H-E-N, capital M-E-D, for those who don't know. And it's devoted to caring for moderate to low-income seniors who have complex chronic diseases. Um, They hire clinicians 
and health coaches who are enthusiastic about caring for that specific population. They give them very focused training and they give them, relatively speaking, a very small patient panel. So they're providing primary care, but a very specialized focused form of it. And at least according to their data, it pays off in terms of outcomes like ED visits and hospital admissions. And in tandem with that, you get lower costs. And Sean, I know you had some uh, examples along those lines or, or just in terms of entities that are able to provide healthcare in new and better ways. Yeah, so one of the hottest topics right now in D.C. with the federal government because of the midterm elections is, of course, mental health, specifically among young adults and substance use disorder that really come to light, you know, during the pandemic. And, and you know, much like health equity, um, which a lot of these disruptors are looking at, you know, how to balance that those health inequities in, in healthcare. Uh, mental health startups are are just going through the roof right now. There's a lot of folks getting into this area so much that mental health startups in the U.S. Um, maintain their spot as the top money raisers in 2021. They brought in $5.1 billion and $3.3 billion more than any other clinical indication in 2021. They nearly doubled um, 2020's funding total of $2.7 billion, according to um, a Rock Health report that I was reading a few weeks ago. Um, but two companies that are getting into this space um, that are very interesting and I'm really following closely now are mental health startups Brightlines. And Brightlines is a Silicon Valley-based company that provides virtual behavioral health care to children, um, adolescents, and families. They just secured 105 million Series C funding at the end. I think it was right around in March. Um, and they're currently valued at 705 million. They're focusing on national high-quality, accessible, affordable behavioral health care through employing their own pediatric-trained coaches therapists, psychiatrists, and speech-language pathologists. Um, the CDC released information a few weeks ago showing data that one in five teens have considered suicide in the last year, um, and 75% of the counties across the U.S. don't have adolescent psychiatrists in their communities. So Brightlines is creating engagement with youth in really interesting ways that I've been pretty impressed by. One other engaging acts is they, they've set up a mobile barbershop where they provide free haircuts to adolescents and they provide um, behavioral health awareness education while that adolescent is getting that free haircut. So it's kind of like a, you know, a captive audience while they're on this, this haircut bus in these areas that um, are hit hard by mental health issues. Um, so very creative ideas to watch for some of these startups. One of the other um, mental health startups is, is called Brightside Health. Their latest funding round pushed them to $750 million in value. Um, Bloomberg just reported last month. And they launched in 2019. They were formerly Emilio Healthcare that I had not heard of was, was their name before this. They developed a technology-enabled behavioral health home for children and their families. The company's growth um, has come at a time when rates, like I said, of, of behavioral health conditions are skyrocketing across the country and having a disproportionate impact on working families. One in five caregivers report having quit their jobs in the past year. And that's what Brightline is focusing on with their digital on-demand support, coaching programs, and extensive clinical services to support families struggling with anxiety, cyberbullying, 
ADHD and depression. Um, they plan on using their new investments to expand access to care by exploring coordination with different partners for specialized care. So they are really tailoring some great services for teens, folks on the autism spectrum, and then LGBTQ and biopic um, individuals in the community. Some folks that really have seen surges in mental health issues over the last several years. So a lot to follow there. And I think they are founded by a university, maybe Stanford University has a hand in um, setting up right side. So it's very interesting to see where they go and um, what happens there. Yeah, like you said, just a ton of stuff to follow and and ton of developments to follow um, in the area of behavioral health care and how you know, that whole service line stands to be disrupted. Um, making mental health services available in conjunction with giving a haircut is innovative to, right. to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Nick, now that we see the feds really pushing for mental health parity, you know, I think these companies are seeing this and they're seeing that, you know, it's, it's possible that you can offer these services without taking a loss like hospitals have been doing for so many years. Um, so they're willing to take a, take a chance and get in there and, try to correct some of these issues that we've been having literally for 10 or 15 years. No doubt. No doubt. And, you know, mental health, of course, is a, a service line that that really lends itself to virtual care and, and efforts to meet patients where they are. We've seen that during the pandemic. That sort of ties into the next area I think we wanted to discuss, which is aspects of disruption involving telehealth, hospital at home. Uh, what are some latest developments that people should be following there? One of the latest developments that I'm seeing more and more pop up in new rules, new regulations, um, new guidance out of MACPAC and MedPAC are request and advisement to CMS to really start ratcheting up physician and facility reporting on telehealth services to just to make sure that everything's on the up and up that's getting billed. I don't think we're going to see any disruption to telehealth services or cutbacks. But I think we're going to see some more checks and balances be put into place for telehealth services, making sure that um, those providing it are providing the appropriate care at the appropriate time. So I think that's one thing that we need to start looking at. The other area was hospital at home. Is there any major developments as far as disruptive entities who are emerging in that space? I think you're talking about acute care hospital at home. I'm not hearing a lot of disruption there yet. What I am hearing is hospitals are still gaining their footing on acute care at home and how to fiscally budget that into their organizations. I think um, for the most part, those programs have been very successful, Um, maybe a little bit more successful, believe it or not, on the um, managed care side rather than the Medicare side, because I think payments, um, managed care plans have been able to see the benefit at, of the acute care at home program and this and the long term significant long term savings from those programs. So I think those capitated or those per diem payments that hospitals and providers are negotiating with with those managed care plans are a little bit more making the ends meet for that program. Um, so I do I do expect to see those programs take off, and I am very certain that we're going to see folks, especially in disruption try to get into that space because there's just so many business partners and outside care entities that need to go out to the home to service those patients. So I could definitely see some contract services going on there and some telehealth services going on with acute care at home. 
as well as outpatient hospital care at home. That is something that, of course, we're seeing more and more disruption get into. Nick had, had talked earlier on our webinar about Amazon, you know, extending to 22 more U.S. cities. And part of that program in those cities is having nurse and clinicians go to the home for lab draws and, and for some care on, for chronic conditions. I mean, I think we're going to see more and more folks get into that venue. Would you agree, Nick? Yeah, it's definitely it definitely seems to be one of the next horizons in which, you know, disruption could really emerge. And I think, like you said, as legacy providers sort of find their footing in that space, in the hospital at home space, we'll see, you know, if any outside uh, organizations find maybe a different model, a different way of approaching it that allows them to really become a major player in that area. It seems to be very much a consumer-based focused world and meeting that consumer. And in this case, we're talking about patients, but being that consumer where they are and making it as convenient as possible for that patient to seek that care in the setting that they want to seek. I can tell you, you know, an exact same example in a different industry is in the last two years, we have engaged and hired a at-home vet service. It's a vet here in my hometown that comes out and does all the veterinary services at your house. And it's just so much easier. Now, true to form, that veterinary does not do surgeries because she doesn't have an office. She only has a mobile office. So she needs to refer all of those patients that she sees, you know, to a surgical office. So she, she collaborates with hospitals, with veterinary hospitals to do those services. So it's a very similar setup. But it's a convenience factor of, you know, not going into a vet's office and waiting two hours to be seen, which is what I was doing before and taking off work to do that. Now there's someone who will, who is very good that we trust that comes out to the house and she's busier than ever. So that's, you know, very similar market, just different type of care, just different patients, right? Yes, indeed. A little bit of a difference in, in patients. But, you know, it, it points to the fact that in terms of opportunities to collaborate between legacy providers and disruptors, just like the person who comes out and provides veterinary services to you guys at your home contracts with veterinary hospitals, no doubt similar opportunities should arise in treating people. Right, Nick. I mean, you and I have talked to many of our members um, and some of our larger health systems as well are beginning to have talks and I have been in talks with Walmart and Amazon about the services in their communities and contacting with them on those services that they can't offer, right? And, and getting referrals out of the system that way. Absolutely. So that many chances to, um, you know, establish partnerships that will be to the benefit of not only hospitals and their operations and their finances, but, but certainly to consumers in terms of higher quality outcomes and experiences. We also talked about efforts at disruption that didn't necessarily pan out and lessons to be gained from those, from those efforts. And one I touched on briefly was Google Health, which over the previous few years had been a spinoff from Google. But after encountering various obstacles, it's now reintegrated back into the larger company. They've got an audience of really billions of people who use Google search and, and YouTube and other products. Subsequent to our webinar, I had a chance to speak with Karen DeSalvo, who's their chief health officer, which is basically the company's lead role. She's had a long and distinguished career in public health and in, in Washington, D.C. policymaking. As people who have listened to us know, I'm all about the seamless plug. So, and you know, it's a good thing I don't have a pending book deal or our 
poor listeners might never hear the end of it. But you can read my interview with Karen in the May issue of HFM magazine. And more to the point, she'll be speaking at HFMA's annual conference in late June in uh, Denver. But anyway, she said Google Health is mainly interested in collaborating. Again, there's that word, collaboration with consumers, with providers. A big thing with consumers is to make it as easy and seamless as possible to access healthcare. So many of us do. You, you start your initial healthcare query with a Google search. So they want you to then be able to find a provider without having to navigate across platforms. You know, as you think about their provider services, they've got a product that enhances the ability to find clinical information within the EHR. Also, and something that's in the discussion stage, uh, Karen said, is a tool that would offer insights into social determinants of health as applicable to any specific patient whom you're looking up in the EHR. So it just goes to show, again, that disruptive innovations may happen through partnerships, not just through unfettered competition. Right. I, I agree with you, Nick. And, and that's one of the things I think I mentioned in the webinar. Google really has, um, from the very beginning, tended to be a disruptor or a, a leader that has wanted to collaborate and made their foray into the market through collaboration rather than just replacement or trying to get into the market, you know, on their own. They've they've wanted to make the existing healthcare. Not that everyone else doesn't either, but it's been prevalent from Google that they want to make the system better by adding or enhancing what's already happening there in the market. So they're they're really reaching out heavily to collaborate with with what we're calling now, I guess, legacy providers. Um, so that's really cool to see, and that's really cool to hear that that they're continuing some of those programs. No doubt. And, you know, they, yeah, Karen explained it like that's always been their culture as a company. Open access, the Android phone is not a, you know, a closed ecosystem, but they open it up, their app store for, you know, outside developers to come in and innovate and, and make their presence felt. So definitely they're, they're uh, one name that bears watching because they're Google and they have a major impact across industries, but they also have a chance to, work in tandem with providers to improve uh, operations and consumer experiences. Speaking of collaboration, one of the disruptors that I've been following since our last webinar that I really had not picked up on before, and I just saw it at the end of March, was the Hems and Hers and Carbon Health partnership that just kind of formed and took off. You know, most of us know Hems and Hers as like mental health, sexual health, derm, hair loss, um, dermatology, they're really, really heavily promoted on um, websites such as Bloomberg and Men's Health and GQ and the New York Times really does a lot of hims and hers advertising. They collaborated because hims and hers wanted to expand into the population of more a friendlier full healthcare experience where they could refer some of their members or patients on their telehealth platform to more specific primary care, urgent care, mental health, women's health. Um, I think they're getting into LGBTQ as well. They're wanting to refer those patients that, you know, they don't offer more primary care services to. They partnered with Carbon Health to do that, to take on that piece. So here we have kind of two disruptors working together and collaborating together to expand their book of services without going to a legacy provider at this time. So we're seeing collaboration within the disruption environment too, which is, I think, very interesting to watch and see how this happens. 
Yeah, that that really does bear watching. It's just going to be sort of fascinating to see how two companies can come together and sort of merge their respective strengths and and see what what comes of that. You know, I wanted to take this opportunity. An, an attendee at the end of the webinar in March asked about IBM Watson Health, and the question kind of stumped me just because I hadn't thought to look them up when we were preparing. IBM Watson was supposed to open new frontiers in healthcare AI applications, including in oncology care, uh, pharma, research and development, um, some other areas. But at the beginning of this year, IBM sold off Watson's data and analytics products for more than a billion dollars to a private equity firm. That sounds like a lot of money, but it represented a multi-billion dollar loss relative to what IBM had put into the venture largely to buy up Truven and other data companies to support its AI engine. And it just turned out that physicians didn't think the AI analytics were as universally applicable or insightful as IBM thought they would be. IBM has retained a segment of Watson, which it plans to use to focus, I think, on cloud computing operations rather than frontline healthcare. So I think a key takeaway is that applying AI on a large scale in as complex an industry as healthcare is a challenge. And it's no surprise to see missteps along the way. And I saw during the webinar, you talk about Theranos and, and a couple others. Anything to add as far as maybe lessons from folks who tried out this disruption thing and didn't necessarily fail, but things didn't quite pan out as, as they'd been anticipating? Yeah. I mean, clearly Theranos truly failed and who feels bad about calling her a failure, right? But um, yeah, some didn't. There's some of those ventures that disbanded, but the takeaways were pretty great for those disbanded collaborations. Haven, of course, disbanded. That was Amazon, Berkshire, and, and JP Morgan. They disbanded after three years. But everything they learned, they took back to their respective giant companies and implemented and really simplified their employees' Uh, and better their their employees' processes for obtaining, you know, a more affordable prescription drug access and more affordable healthcare. You know, Google, we talked about them in great detail earlier. You know, they kind of backed off the patient data that they were after that because of an issue obtaining that with third-party resources. But they're just refocusing. And like you said, I think we'll see big things come from them. And then, of course, you know, Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, you know, being convicted. Yes, that was an epic failure and kind of a disgrace. But the lessons learned coming from that, I think that we'll see, hopefully, from federal oversight to try and prevent things like that from happening in the future. Dishonesty in, in you know, not just the blood testing market, but in healthcare in general, I mean, I think there are things that valuable things to take away from that experience that we'll see come in policy and regulations in the future. So any of these items, I think, worth watching, worth learning from. I mean, hey, mental health services at a mobile barbershop. I mean, who can't applaud that? That's pretty creative and pretty genius. Um, so I think we need to keep an open mind when we look at these disruptors and these folks that are getting into the healthcare market from a different lens and from a different world than we've been working in before, if that makes sense. Yeah, it certainly does. That brings us to the end of the segment. Uh, the big themes, the key takeaways for me are, you know, opportunities for collaboration between legacy providers and disruptors. Um, again, segmentation is a big opportunity. Behavioral healthcare definitely merits watching as a space that's you know, ripe for disruption. Uh, Sean, any, any closing thoughts from you? 
No, I agree. I think the key takeaway to all of these conversations that we're having on disruption, and every time I speak on disruption, people really enjoy the conversation that I have at these meetings and these events. But if you're not having those internal conversations in your organizations about disruptors and about your strategic approach that should be you know, getting solidified now on how you're going to handle disruption in your community. Those are conversations that you need to really be having strategically at your organization right now and have someone watching this in your community, watching it with your community employers and your insurance companies um, to see who they're reaching out to and involving. So I think it's important just to keep your finger on the pulse of this. Yeah, definitely. Great parting thought there. So thank you all for listening. This topic of of disruption is not going away. So we'll be covering extensively at hfma.org and during Beyond the News. Uh, Who knows, maybe even another webinar is in the offering. So stay tuned and thanks, everybody. Let's take a moment now to discuss something exciting happening at HFMA, our partnership with Boise State University. We've launched a master's degree program in population and health systems management. And recently, Beth Brosel sat down to discuss the program with Todd Nelson, HFMA's Director of Partner Relationships. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. One of the best things about this program is it's meant to give students information they can apply right now in the real world. Can you give some examples of the type of learning they'll be doing? So a couple really cool features about the program are they have every week there's a in addition to the regular faculty, there's a guest lecturer. So the guest lecturer is someone currently working in the industry, could be someone at a health insurance company, could be a governmental, uh, somebody working at CMMI, you know, leading innovation from the federal perspective, Mm -hmm. could be somebody that is working on the state perspective, building models. I mean, so it's really someone from all over the place. And what happens is the students get that real world experience from the guest lectures combined with a deep understanding of the concepts they're learning in each course and throughout the weeks. And, you know, one of the cool projects that they're doing is they're building an actual care transformation model. So each of the students will be looking, researching various value-based care models, and all the different attributes and aspects of that, developing one on their own and presenting that to the faculty and select guest lectures for feedback, really actually creating a model of transformation. And participation in this program, it's already paying off for students. We're seeing results. Do you have any success stories that you would like to share? The students are doing everything from creating published research papers that are going to be uh, sent out in various research journals, building these value-based care models, which are really quite interesting, um, having that exposure to federal, local, and state policymakers to be able to articulate those things, as well as um, we've had students that have already received a promotion just part of the way through the program, which is really quite amazing because of the work that they've done. In fact, one student's uh, promotion covered the tuition that they're paying for the entire master's degree. Oh, that's awesome. It's really amazing. I'm really proud of the faculty that, that are there, the collaboration with Boise State, but also the students. I mean, we learn from them, you know, every week. Mm hmm. 
And how can people get more information on this program? The easiest way to go is out to boisestate.edu phsm for population health systems management great thank you so much for joining us today todd thank you voices in healthcare finance is a production of the healthcare financial management association and written and hosted by me erica grotto sound editing is by linda chandler brad dennison is our director of content strategy our president and ceo is joe pfeiffer Registration is open for our annual conference. We've got some great speakers on the agenda, and we might even be doing a little podcasting on site. Visit hfma.org and register today. If you want to talk with our podcasting team, reach out to us anytime. You can email us at podcast at hfma.org. The Eye of the Tiger was Rocky Three. Wow.